Welcome to the latest Table for 10 Billion podcast from the World Bank, supported by the Food Systems 2030 Trust Fund. I'm Sarah Trino. What you can hear is the bustling hubbub of traffic, street vendors, everyday life in the commercial hub of the port city of Aden, Yemen. It might all sound like a snapshot of busy, if chaotic, normality, but Yemen has been at the sharp edge of conflict and food insecurity now for years. Okay. My name is uh, Alamu Asfaw. I'm a senior economist working for Yemen FAO, and now I'm based in Yemen. Over half of the population, which is close to 17 million, are experiencing high levels of food insecurity. And more than 4.3 million people are internally displaced, and 3.5 million children are acutely malnourished. About 11 million people, which basically means one in three Yemeni, will likely rely on humanitarian assistance. And as Alamu goes on to explain to me, the situation for so many is heartbreaking. We went to uh, one household to listen to what's what's going on. In that household, this lady is basically feeding about 12 people in a household with a very, very meager resource. She is really struggling to even respond to our basic questions. So what are your source of food? And what are your source of income? No, for her, she is so proud not to say that begging as a source of income or a source of food or humanitarian assistance as her her source of food. That kind of thing really touches you a lot. Finding ways to avert food crises and to prevent them from escalating into famine is critical. And that's at the heart of what we'll be discussing on the podcast. We'll be exploring food security crisis preparedness plans. We'll be hearing what they are, what they mean in terms of partnerships and for those most vulnerable to food insecurity. We'll be getting more insights from Yemen and we'll be hearing from Somalia and the World Bank in Washington, D.C. The country has been experiencing a severe drought for the past few years. Uh, It's always between two extremes, severe drought and then severe flooding. For the poor, this is really like a one meal per day kind of situation. We should firmly believe that this is a solvable issue. This is something we don't have to live with. This is something that's preventable. That's all coming up on the table for 10 billion podcast from the World Bank. I sell vegetables in Dar Saad district. Here, most people are poor. I buy my vegetables from the central market, which are already expensive. This makes it hard to raise the reselling price. I got into debt. I am married and have seven kids. As for my own house groceries, I am unable to afford things. I manage day to day. The kids are mostly suffering from the lack of food. Aden is a very hot place and there is shortage in electricity and no fans and no batteries because I cannot afford that. 
That's a voiceover of a message sent me by a man called Abdul. His experience of scarcity, of the struggle to feed his family, is, says Alamu, sadly typical of many. In, in, in an average day, the standard food consumption in uh, Yemen is mostly rice with a little bit of any sauce available in, in, in the places where you call them better off households. They have meat and other ingredients, other kinds of spices included. But for the poor, this is really like a one meal per day kind of uh, situation. Alamu told me more and explained a bit about the context to Yemen's food crisis. Protracted localized conflict, very high and ever-increasing food and fuel prices exacerbated by the war in Ukraine uh, as Yemen relies on 90% of its, its food importers from abroad and volatile weather patterns and unstable currency and economic downturn play a significant negative role. So the complex balance between conflict and climate has left consistently Yemen to be ranked among the world's hungriest countries as well as one of its largest displacement crisis countries. Alamu, you're working for the UN's FAO in Yemen. Tell me about some of the ways the FAO is trying to help mitigate the food crisis. FAO also provides some life-saving emergency kits to populations facing food consumption gaps and supports households to maintain their livelihoods, focusing on the rehabilitation of community assets and, and support to livelihoods and encourage households to diversify their source of income and providing early warning information for decision makers to act timely. Timely action is clearly critical, but to rethink responses, is it also the case that the causes of food crises also need to be sort of accounted for in a different way? We need to uh, tackle both what caused extreme food insecurity and who caused the extreme food insecurity. The action or inaction of government or international community by acts of commission or omission due to various reasons, needs to be analysed thoroughly. We'll be returning to Yemen a little later in the podcast. But Yemen, while it's been at the sharpest of sharp edges when it comes to food insecurity and the focus of international media attention over the last few years, is not alone in facing serious problems with food supplies. Let's head over now to Mogadishu the fast-growing historic port city, the capital of Somalia, which is, says our next guest, a city of some contradiction. Uh, Thank you very much, Sarah, for this invite. Uh, My name is Abdi Tawane. I'm based in Mogadishu, working with the Ministry of Finance on Somalia Crisis Recovery Project, a project that is budgeted for 187 million. U.S. dollars to respond to multiple crises around the nation, more primarily focusing on disaster risk recovery and enhancing community resilience, as well as strengthening government capacity and preparedness to to disasters. I asked Abdi to tell me all about Mogadishu today. It's a 
bustling city recovering from in a post conflict recovery mode a lot of real estate going on while there are more difficulties and challenges all over from terrorism uh, explosions happening uh, from time to time is a, a city with uh, most resilient people on earth <laughs> it's uh, going at a very good speed to to catch up with the rest of the cities around the world. Abdi explained to me some of the background of the food crisis facing some parts of the country. Yeah, Somalia has been continuing to face uh, food security issues since the collapse of the state back in the 90, early 90s. There has been a catastrophic food crisis that has been recurrent, which leads to millions of around around millions of people facing uh, acute food insecurity and the situation has been getting only worse. He also says that in addition to fragility and conflict, climate change has made matters much, much worse. The country has been experiencing a severe drought for the past few years. Uh, it's always between two extremes, severe drought and then severe flooding, and which affects their, their livelihoods and causing livestock deaths also affecting the access to clean water. Also, this is compounded by the conflict scenario in the country, uh, still a fragile, in a fragile situation uh, because of the uh, scarce resources. Conflicts erupt from time to time among the pastoral communities, which now this makes it difficult for people to access food and uh, cause also displacements for millions of people. Another also more global scenario is the climate change, which is uh, causing the, the droughts that are becoming more frequent and severe, and it's making harder for people to grow to grow food continuously. So as a result of these factors, uh, millions of people are in Somalia are facing uh, acute food insecurity. Uh, they are not getting enough to eat, and uh, and they are at risk of malnutrition, some uh, and uh, sometimes uh, even death. Uh, although through concerted efforts, the government and the humanitarian partners have uh, successfully manage to prevent famine. And famine prevention, as we'll go on to hear, is of critical importance. This is the Table for 10 Million podcast from the World Bank. I'm Sarah Trino. So we've heard from two countries with different stories, both tackling food insecurity as well as fragility, displaced populations and climate change. Let's turn now to the World Bank. So, hi, Sarah. It's a pleasure to uh, be part of this podcast. My name is Zachary Carmichael. I'm an economist in the Agriculture and Food Global Practice of the World Bank, and I am the technical focal point for a facility that we have at the bank called the Crisis Response Window Early Response Financing, which is about a a billion-dollar facility meant to respond to food security crises. And I'm also part of the core food and nutrition security team for the bank. I asked Zach to go back to basics for me. We've heard a lot about food crises, and what springs to mind is news reports of upsetting images, hungry children, families trekking for miles, queuing up for food. What do we mean when we say food crisis? I think food crises, the definition of food crises is is often a difficult one um, because food crises can materialize in so many different ways. Uh, There have been efforts over the years to come up with more rigorous criteria for when we recognize what we would call crisis conditions. And those often relate to the amount of food uh, that people are consuming at any given point, the level of malnutrition that a country is experiencing, the level of mortality that's driven by food insecurity and nutrition insecurity on your hands. But this is one of the issues that we've been trying to address is how do we systematically 
come to the recognition of a crisis, uh, as opposed to having different definitions and different people recognizing the problem at different times. This is one of the big issues we've been working on. It's really difficult to say with exact numbers, I totally appreciate, but how many people roughly do we think are living in food crisis conditions globally? Uh, the number, as you mentioned, is, is a difficult one to quantify. There are a lot of different partners who work on that specific issue. But as of 2022, there were 258 million people in what we would consider uh, food security crisis conditions. And that spans around 58 countries and territories. So it doesn't mean that every person within a country is experiencing those conditions, but there are populations within those countries that are experiencing those conditions. So these are these are very serious conditions where people uh, have needed to resort to uh, severe coping strategies uh, just to feed themselves. They've depleted their livelihood assets. They're facing significant issues that could lead to increased mortality. That's that's different than the broader hunger issue that we have that affects every single country. But I think it's important to note that we've been seeing record increases in that number over the last few years. Why is the number growing? Is it climate change, conflict? Climate change is a major major driver of food insecurity. Um, while we would have expected maybe a drought, for instance, in Somalia to occur maybe once every decade uh, or a major drought, it, it's now happening on a more a more rapid pace, right? So instead of 10 years, it might be happening every three to four years. And, and that's not good because it leaves us less time to respond. Another major issue would be conflict trends. Um, of course, the uh, war in Ukraine uh, has had major global impacts, but also localized conflict continues to play a major role. Uh, it leads to displacement, leads to uh, border-related issues, uh, a lot of different factors there. Governments that responded to COVID, large uh, fiscal packages to respond, uh, increasing debt burdens. As that fiscal space is lowered, as those debt burdens increase, that means there's less ability to actually scale up responses. So for instance, if it's cash transfers to help with food access or, or other policy measures, this, this becomes a limiting factor of, of what can be done. I asked Zachary to talk me through the food security crisis preparedness plans. Yes. So the food security crisis preparedness plans are a systematic way for us to not only identify when a food security crisis may be emerging in a country, uh, but also to ensure that there is a timely response across the fullness of government and the international community to, to bolster a response to that crisis. And to understand the value of a preparedness plan, we need to understand what are the problems in the system today. And the first issue that I mentioned on the collective recognition of the problem, often there are different partners at the country level who are monitoring uh, these conditions at different levels, and they're doing it from an operational standpoint. So humanitarians, uh, such as our United Nations counterparts, uh, have very specific operational needs, and they are focused on humanitarian needs. When it comes to development actors like the World Bank, we're focused on longer-term issues. We're focused on policy-related uh, discussions with government counterparts. So, so we we share the the problem, but we look at it from different angles. Explain to me why a food security crisis differs to other crises, shocks like earthquakes, other natural disasters, for example. A food security crisis is different than 
what we would call sudden onset shock. So for instance, when there's a major earthquake, you can see the headlines uh, of when that event occurred. And so you don't really need a lot of consensus building to know whether or not there was a major problem when, when a massive earthquake like that happens. We can go out, we can see the buildings that are uh, destroyed. We can calculate the damage quickly. Um, there's a lot of press coverage and news on it. Food security crises don't happen in the same way, typically. They build over time. We can see the impacts growing. But the, the issue is, is that steady growth doesn't come with uh, instantaneous type of recognition as you would get from something like a major earthquake. So one of the great aspects of the preparedness plan is to be able to sort through all of the noise that is accompanied by those uh, growing crises and to be able to say, this is the point at which we think that there's a problem, but we don't have a process necessarily in place that brings all of the right players together at the country level to make that determination. So the preparedness plan says, instead of us going about this individually and at different rates, let's create a system in which we bring information that monitors these various risks and pathways that a crisis, a food security crisis can materialize, bring it together in a consolidated regular way and make sure that we're convening together around this and that we have some protocols for determining whether or not a crisis may be occurring. The second step is then to say, what do we do about that? And that's where a lot of work needs to take place and where the preparedness plans are helping is to outline in the event that we were to face a food security crisis, how could we scale up? What money could end up flowing or potentially could flow? And what actions could be taken by the various partners around the table, including government, uh, to respond? Back in Yemen, Alamu explained how he sees the preparedness plans. He agrees that both monitoring and planning are critical. This magnitude of challenges require a different kind of joint monitoring that, that comes through FSCPP, in which more than 20 million lives and livelihoods are at stake if we are not monitoring food security and nutrition situation on regular basis. So food security crisis preparedness plan and its joint monitoring report helps us to anticipate plan for and expand financing options through various adaptive measures in averting and minimizing loss and damage and also enhancing global food security, reducing risks of displacement, conflict and crisis. And it, it, in some cases, it also helps you to avoid maladaptation as it provides you a regular kinds of information. And partnerships, I suppose, are key in that respect. Having an innovative joint monitoring platform, which helps us to estimate population at risk in a certain area early enough to respond or to assess gaps and to have collective understanding and identification of the food and nutrition crisis is extremely critical. I asked Zachary to give me an example of why a different approach to crisis planning and prevention is so important. Why does it matter that there's agreement over the definition of a crisis, for example? There are a number of people who have analysed past 
tragedies, um, such as in Somalia in 2010, 2011, where there was uh, a famine that occurred. There were significant alarm bells that were raised even a year prior to famine being officially declared in the country and recognizing that funding did not begin to flow until that declaration was made. And unfortunately, by the time that declaration was made, uh, nearly half of the total deaths that had occurred had already uh, happened. And I think at the end of the day, uh, I think the figure was around 250,000 people who, who died. As this news clip highlights, the situation for many was bleak. Six rows of makeshift tents. Some of these people walked for days to reach the city, such as their desperation for food and water. They live in squalor, but their chances of survival are far better than they would be outside the city. This is unconscionable. And when the country was facing similar conditions in 2016 and 2017, you still had a number of people who had gone through that 2010 experience who basically said, not on my watch. Now, the question we have to raise is, are those changes are systematic or was it just dependent upon the fact that we had the right people still there who recognized the problems and did not want to relive that? And that's where the preparedness plans really come into place. It's to say, um, we're not always going to have the same people there who know that experience. We're we need to make sure that the system operates in a predictable way. And so ideally, if a preparedness plan is in place, we would be recognizing that problem. We'd be taking those early warnings uh, into account and we would be escalating it at a much earlier level so that we can get that funding uh, to begin flowing so that we can get the scale up uh, on the programming that's needed to, to head off that problem. Abdi, working with the government in Somalia, gives me his take. These food security crisis preparedness plan that uh, we are working on currently, I think, puts together a, a national plan that puts together the, all the operational arrangements required to, to define what constitutes a major food, food nutrition security crisis for a country. And it details, again, step-by-step protocols and roles and timelines for mobilizing additional funding. It's a World Bank requirement uh, associated with uh, receiving support from the early response financing. It's, it uh, extends beyond the World Bank's engagement and uh, represents the country's national plan. It's a living document that could be improved while based on the learnings uh, from its implementation. This plan it's a big deal. It's not something that was there in the country before. It gives the government the authority to be in the driving seat for making these announce, such announcements or leading the humanitarian and the development partners to responding to this food security and nutrition crisis whenever they happen. Abdi says that community engagement is key. In this plan, how the communities take part is uh, there is that continuous monitoring and identification of uh, food security nutrition crisis that puts in place uh, a mechanism of sharing information with the community and also people continuously monitoring the markets and uh, uh, engaging community members on uh, their perception on the food security crisis situation, uh, which would inform now in their in their data gathering and uh, the, the analysis they will make, uh, again, would 
also contribute to the decisions to be made at the senior level. Back to Zachary. So there's only so much information you can pull from satellite imagery. So when we look at drought conditions, we might look at vegetation rates uh, and we can pull that from satellite imagery. It's useful information, but the best information is going to come from the ground. So the thing that we need to invest in, and this is where the preparedness plans are also helping to push the frontier on this, is to say that whatever information is out there, there needs to be a predictable means for bringing it together. So if there is a partner like the World Food Program who's collecting food prices, and it could be on a daily basis or or weekly or you know, however it's being collected. And then there is another partner like the World Bank is collecting nutrition-related information. The question we raise is, is that information being brought together? Because it's very valuable information to help inform whether or not there might be worsening risks in the country. It's clear that food insecurity, food crises, malnutrition are complex and urgent challenges which disproportionately impact the poor. The causes are varied and constantly shifting. They can be unpredictable, they can build over time, they can overlap, and the effect can be catastrophic. But let's get a last word from our three contributors, starting with Abdi in Mogadishu. We are happy that Somalia now is also one of the few countries that has uh, had this opportunity to get this plan in place. And uh, we, as the, the Somalia Crisis Recovery Project team, also uh, very also honored to be the pioneers of putting this plan together at least for the first time in the history of the country. Alamu back in Aden had this to say. Security and peace are a prerequisite for food security transformation. So without peace and security, basically you have nothing. And then the second most important thing is the accountability and governance element, and also an institutional strengthening element should have a critical role in changing the entire setup of food security in the country. And Zachary added this. There is a, a view, it's a historical view, that famines, that acute food insecurity, extreme levels of hunger are just a fact of this world, and it's something that we've grown to accept. And I would just like to say that um, it's a wrong view. We should firmly believe, and, and I can tell you just from my own experience working with brilliant people across the international community who fight day in, day out on this issue, that this is a solvable issue. This is something we don't have to live with. This is something that's preventable. And if we have the right investments, if we invest in this new system, or revamped system, may I say, of greater preparedness, of working together, uh, this, is an, this is an issue that can be solved within our lifetimes, without, without a doubt. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Table for 10 Billion, supported by the Food Systems 2030 Trust Fund. I'm Sarah Trino, and we'll be back soon.